when DJing took over, it was more about me going, you know what, as much as I love dancing, I want to make people dance. Grammy award-winning producer, remixer, DJ. From R&B to soul to disco, all of that really informed the foundation for me musically. A house music legend. You are the creative, and if you don't, feed that and if you don't make the decisions that sit well with your spirit ultimately you'll crash moments in music welcome to moments in music a podcast where we get to know our guests through the records that define them my name is lucy aka monkey and on today's show we have a house music legend it is the man himself roger sanchez hi roger hey monkey how's it going good Good stuff. Um, I just wanted to say, I was listening to your track on the way here again. Ah, I was, yeah, I was listening to that it. Again, that, that again, old that old chestnut. Yeah, <laughs> I was listening to it on the way here in the car and it really like struck a tone with me. Which one, the part of getting your car towed in the morning? <laughs> just the whole thing. It, it, for those that haven't listened, go and have a listen. And it's all about just like having one of those days. Yeah. Having one of those yeah. weeks. And I just had had one of those weeks. Oh. And it put a massive late. smile on my face. Good. Listening uh, that, to it. that is the reason why I made that track. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, I'm glad it connected with you on that level. It did massively. And Sorry, I was I was kind of just like laughing in the car, <laughs> to be honest. It's like, ah. I've been there. I know what that's like. <laughs> Damn it. Got to get my car back from the toe. Exactly. Was that was that track born out of one of those weeks? Do you know, it's funny. Um, that track really came about. Actually, I started creating it 18 years ago. No way. And I released it originally on my second album, Come With Me, mm. in 2006. Mm. Um and it was one of those tracks as I was doing the album that I kind of wanted to shift gears in the album. And, and the one, the thing that I like about doing album projects is, although they take a while to kind of get to, they're a bit of a journey. Mm. And I, I was like, this is all really serious on this album, like proper house tracks and songs and so on and so forth. So I kind of wanted something that had a bit more levity in it, but also personal. So some of the things that have happened that I talk about, some happened to me, some happened to mates of mine, mm. and some I just kind of made up a scenario. Um, and I actually, there's a lot more that I had written and recorded that I didn't use in the final uh, production just because I'm like, okay, it's I've kind of gotten to the point where it's like, okay, I think I've, I've got enough kind of relatable stories in there. But uh, the one that, like the very first one that I talk about about getting your car towed actually happened when I was dating someone when I used to live in Manhattan and she had parked her car outside. So it actually happened <laughs> to my girl at the time where she came downstairs and her car was gone. It's like, oh man, now we got to go down to the Empire yard and, and, and pay some astronomical fine just to get it back. So I was like, okay, that could be really interesting to put in this. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, I've got my vocalist Jaquita who did the the chorus part of it. It just the here we go here we go again. <laughs> there we go up down. And what was interesting is that I didn't think it would connect. Mm. And when I released it, then it was cool. It had a kind of like a cool club thing. The beats were kind of tribal. Yeah, that Latin influence, which is kind of you know very prevalent in a lot of the tracks of the album. But I, 
it's like one of those tracks. It's like, oh, cool. I did it. It's done. It's right. out. 17 years later, total surprise that it blew up. And honestly, there's a couple of people like this guy, uh, Mahmoud Orhan, who's a Turkish DJ. He's really, really big out in Turkey. Um, he made that track his signature track. Right. And it, I've been hearing it kind of like come back um, over the past couple of years, like some Brazilian DJs had done their own bootleg version of it. And I told my team, I'm like, something's happening with this one. I don't know what's going on. It's one of those tracks that, you know, that the, I know the tracks of mine, which were big, which kind of still are are, are kind of in the general um, playing public and we've remixed. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we might have to do something with this one. And then he was posting it. And there was one post that got like 60 million views. Not. It's mental. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, after that, that went viral. So right. I was like, okay, I think I got to re-edit the original because the original version, and particularly the part where I go, um, um, uh, don't even bother to explain yourself because I don't want to hear it. Just get your shit and go. <laughs> yeah. That's the part that, for whatever reason, <laughs> seems to connect. And... Yeah, so sorry you had a rough week. No, I mean... <laughs> I'm glad to put a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, put a massive smile on my face. And what like a cool story to have its resurgence like so many years later and so unexpected. I think it just attests to the fact that good music has no timestamp and you mm. never know what's going to connect when it's going to connect. Mm. So for me, that was a big lesson because there are some tracks that I have that are sitting in my in my drives and stuff tracks that I've done where I'm like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. You know, let me come back to that. And it's when you get to a point where you're like, you feel like, okay, this is cool. Just put it out in whatever plan you have, mm -hmm. because you never know when things are going to connect. Sometimes they need to sit and kind of live and pick their choose, pick and choose their moments mm -hmm. when they're going to connect with people. The fact that social media is changing the way people consume music has has changed already mm -hmm. but it's really changing the way the industry works and more importantly what connects with people so it's kind of like we used to judge the success of the quote-unquote success of a track with or how it's done when it was released and i kind of go more by like what Prince used to say, the success of an artist is when you've actually finished and completed the piece of music. Mm. That's a success as an artist. And I th I, don't, I think that just kind of, you know, brings the point home. Mm. It's wicked to see how you've kind of adapted with the social media element of it. Yeah. Because I feel like so many people who have been around successfully old bastards <laughs> i tried to put it in a nice way <laughs> no no i call i call it what it is you know listen you don't have to ever put it put it nicely to me I it wasn't actually it a compliment it, I, no, no i appreciate it i call i, I consider the color you yeah you've been around a while haven't you but i can imagine for some people it's quite hard to adapt yeah with how music is consumed now yeah but with that record it's happened quite naturally but you've also you had your ear to the ground with it and you've done it so well. Yeah. How has it been for you as an artist to see that massive shift? Because it's not, the shift was so fast, I felt like. Yeah. I The thing with me is I've always liked to be on the edge uh, and the front when it comes to technology. I'm, mm. I'm very tech head right. when it comes to equipment. You know, I love my vinyls. 
switched right into CDJs and USBs as the transition of technology started happening. And I also study human behavior, just kind of as like my little side thing. It just helps me to understand how people are going to connect with my art Mm. in terms of when I make something, traditionally there was one avenue to get it out. Because I've been paying attention and really kind of jumped in on social media as I started developing, there are some people that I pay attention to really got their ear to the ground, guys like Gary Vee, who's really very into in the understanding of the fact that it, what it boils down to is where people's attentions are. And mm. the different platforms and technologies change people's behavior and it changes the way music and art is consumed and connects. So I can't take, I don't take credit for how it's gone viral. Yeah. Because literally it was just a blessing. It's like, it just happened. But what I have done is I embrace all of these things and I try to utilize it and then just kind of have fun with it. Yeah. I think people forget to have fun. Yeah. And it's like the longer I've been in this industry, the more I've remembered, oh, this is about having fun. Yeah. Great. We got bills to pay. We have yeah. it's serious business when the business side of it, but the core of it, it's kind of like not losing that child. Yeah. And I I really worked hard at not losing my inner child yeah. when it comes to appreciating and being a nerd because I I'm a nerd. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you different. I am a nerd when it comes to music, when it comes to all these things. So I really get into the psychology of what makes it tick. So this is why that worked for me. I was like, I get, I said, okay, we're going to roll with this. Yeah. And it's going to do what it's going to do, whether you like it or not. That's the funny thing. It's like not much I could do about it, you yeah. know, other than jump on that wave and, you know, hope you got a good surfboard. Yeah. That's so refreshing to hear, by the way. And I think um, I can connect with that a lot coming from a music side and also a sports side, like yeah. all these hobbies, that, these things that you get into, whatever the thing is for you, you do it when you're a kid for fun and joy. Exactly. And like, that's the, the element you never want to lose. Um, we haven't even spoken about any of tunes yet that no, you've chosen we'll for us. We'll um, but rolling back to your childhood, yes. um, you grew up in New York uh, at a time where music was the life and soul of the city. 100%. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Part of my DNA is very tied to where I grew up. And I really consider myself incredibly fortunate. Um, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. We weren't, you know, very well off. We kind of grew up in, I grew up in Queens and right by the hood. Um, but we had a lot of love in the house and the, and something that was happening at that point in time in New York City was a con- because it's a melting pot of different cultures, we had a convergence of Latin, Caribbean, African. I was... I grew up in the birth and the growth of hip hop mm-hmm. um, during that era. So for me, it was like growing up there, the fact that I was an artist, went to the high school of art and design, literally put me in the middle of the graffiti um, re- evolution and revolution. And I was a graffiti artist at the same time. So I was kind of really in the mix on the early hip hop side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the years went on and 
sounds were developing, you know, I, my early days of DJing was cutting up breaks. It was very much like what Grandmaster Flash and a lot of the other pioneers were doing, cutting up breaks of like jazz, funk, soul, just really random records that had something that made people dance and and elongating that break and creating something from it mm -hmm. to then transition to when house music started coming out of Chicago. That connected with me in New York at a time when earlier I'd been playing disco, um, hip hop as it first came out, uh, funk and soul and Latin, which is a big part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like what was played in my household from my parents from the Dominican Republic. Um, listening to the radio and hearing different types of sounds from R&B to soul to disco, all of that really just kind of informed the foundation for me musically. Um, I was a break dancer at that point in time too when I was in high school. Yeah. So I was really kind of in the center of that world. And that to me, I'm still a nerd when it comes to graffiti, when it comes to break dancing. I'm still connected to a lot of, of guys from like Rocksteady and all these cats that went to my high school that were really world renowned, became world renowned break dancers, a champion that movement. Um, some rappers that came out of my my high school, a guy like Farrell Monch. So all all these things kind of were nexus to me in terms of where I kind of came out of. Then as house music started becoming far more prominent for me, mm -hmm. I noticed myself buying more house and I was like really into it. Then I started going to clubs like Paradise Garage, mm -hmm. uh, The Loft, um, as they were really the kind of meccas in New York City for, I guess you'd call it the underground back then. It wasn't something that was really globally known at the time when it when it first happened. It, that happened later. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really a kind of a mixture of, of the gay audience, the straight audience. And all of these things really have kind of built and pointed the direction that I'm in now. And it's just really, for me, I just consider myself an incredibly blessed and fortunate person to have been born there yeah. at that time. Because it could have been a few years earlier, a few years later. That particular moment in time is foundational for a lot of what we do today and yeah. what the scene has become. And I don't take credit for it. I just, I'm like, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but you, you can hear all that influence in your music over the years. And your first record, Beatbox, I feel like is a perfect sort yes. of track to choose from that era. So Art and Noise Beatbox, mm -hmm. um, and I still remember buying the vinyl, um, was such a unique record. And I'm, let me tell you, I've struggled to kind of pick a few tracks for today that you know because <laughs> there's so many yeah but i remember the artwork on the cover kind of like the off-white vinyl there was another track in there really which to me i'm going to put a footnote in moments in love mm -hmm. which was an amazing atmospheric record but beatbox to me was kind of foundational for what was the beginning kind of early days of hip-hop Mm -hmm. and those beats were influenced by early kind of like the early hip-hop was disco using good times and you know from chic and it was very disco oriented and then it transitioned into more drum machine and i think that beatbox by art and noise just was that pure distillation of 
weirdness, but then those beats with those big reverbs, and I think it was he was using Lindrums on that, that became just such a defining moment in sound to those early breakdance, electric boogie days that mm -hmm. really, to me, iconicized early hip hop. And, and that was like, when I, when I first started playing that record out, it was like all the break dancers centered to the floor. Mm -hmm. We used to have circles where, you know, it'd be whether you'd be out in the park or whether it'd be at, you know, at that point in time, it was like community hall throwing parties and there'd be the break dancer circle, everybody's watching. And that was the kind of track that really brought that moment home. Mm. I think there are, when people ask the question about, are there any parties that you were maybe, you're too young to go to, but you could go back in time and go to? This era for me is yeah. one of them. Yeah. Hacienda in Manchester is probably yeah. another one. But this era, whenever I look at videos on YouTube, it just, like going back to the fun thing, it is so joyous. Yeah. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. Before it becomes mainstream um, attention mm. and monetized yeah. to a certain degree, the initial kind of fumblings of just, we just want to have fun. Mm. That is the essence that really just kind of sparks the creativity. And I think because I was also very young at that point in time, those are my high school days. So I was 14, 15, 16 years old. I didn't know Jack. <laughs> um, but I knew I had a hell of a lot of fun playing these records and breakdancing in the middle of a circle. And I will tell you, I don't want to say I miss those days, but I look back at them with gratitude because I was like, yeah, I was there. And it was as fun as you think it was. It really was that much fun. Yeah. We had a great time. When did your breakdancing days end? And is there any video footage of this? <laughs> well, funny enough. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. You got to squint. I was in the movie uh, Beach Street. No Crush Groove. Okay. In the background as a break dancer. Yeah. Because I was break dancing at that point in time and I was auditioning to go in and I'd be in these party scenes. So there's a scene at the Roxy, but they don't show me dancing. Like it's just me in the background. And I, I could squint and pause the screen. I'm like, there's my face. <laughs> um, but I was in these break dance movies and you're talking about thousands of break dancers in New York City yeah. showing up and, you know, in between, we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but in between takes, everybody's battling and stuff like that. <laughs> um, I think for me, when DJing took over, mm. it was more about me going, you know what, as much as I love dancing, I want to make people dance. Mm -hmm. So really, I transitioned out of it the more time I started spending on vinyl and, and, and kind of getting my technique down. And then rather than working out, you know, what's the next move I'm going to make? And because I was more like... Uh, electric boogie popping, locking, that was kind of my thing. Yeah. Um, when I kind of said, I kind of want to spend a little more time on the music side, I kind of left that back a bit. So I would say realistically, transitioning out of high school into college, um, where I was about 17 years old, that was about the time when I started really kind of really taking, I stopped breakdancing pretty much completely mm. um, and just went straight into the DJing side of things. That must have given you a little bit of an upper hand though because you've seen both sides of the coin, right? It's what drove me to DJ mm. was being on the dance floor right. and saying, 
I had so much fun here. But the guy that's playing right now is creating this atmosphere. Mm. And then I was kind of like, I kind of want to do that. I kind of want to see what it's like on the other side. I know what it, I know what's going down over here. Now, how can I create that? Mm. So it was all about always about creation and creativity for me. And um, let's talk about the transition between hip hop uh, and house. Yes, Bob James is a great reference to use. So Bob James Nautilus, we're still in that early hip hop era. The interesting thing about it is that it was eclectic, taking jazz records, soul records, African records, Brazilian records, and just finding the breaks and the beats. Bob James, to me, as a someone who loves music, not just for the scene, but just as a lover of music, I'm a total fan of all of his, all of his albums, all of the music he creates as a keyboard player. Just the freedom that he had, and these interesting transitions, and these really atmospheric chords, and the sounds he was getting. Um, releasing all these records out on CTI records. And I was like, it's a jazz album. Mm. So jazz purists just had no idea what, <laughs> you know, us young whippersnappers were doing with their <laughs> jazz records. But Nautilus was one of those ones that then became foundational for so many productions in hip hop. Mm -hmm. But I would play the, that dun -dun 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 -dun, that break and the break in the, in the middle, I would loop up which has this really high tone in it just because the drums were nasty mm. <laughs> and all of those elements, but not just the rhythm of the drums, the sound of it. Mm. So what I got a lot from Bob James records was a production mentality, a mindset from him, from uh, Trevor Horn, who's mm -hmm. also, again, forgot to mention, he was Art of Noise. He then became, he produced Seal and so many other massive records. The, um, the Buggles video killed the radio star. Mm -hmm. um, what I got from these guys was sounds and right. production technique. So Bob James to me was really foundational for getting this really atmospheric um, sound and then really getting that groove mm. and then looping that and cutting that up and turning that into something that's going to drive the dance floor. Mm. And then around after high school, after your hip hop days, you know, the Chicago house scene started to blow up and that really caught your ear. Yeah. As I was buying records in New York City, because yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to Chicago at that point in time. Yeah. But in New York, I was going to Paradise Garage and The Loft. And those records started really becoming center of the things that I was noticing in terms of what I was playing um, became... As then I would go to the record store and be like, hey, I heard Larry LeVan played this track and I was starting to find all of these early tracks coming from Chicago that were really stripped back. So at that point in time, I was playing, you know, breaks, freestyle, which was um, kind of Latin hip hop. But then it really morphed into the sounds coming from Chicago, Marshall Jefferson, Jesse Saunders, all of these tracks that were coming over from Chicago really connected with me. Mm. And then I would go to clubs, like I said, like Paradise Garage and started hearing those kind of DJs. Uh, the energy that the crowd being in the clubs was responding to those records just kind of made me go, okay, 
I think if I have to pick a lane, I want to kind of go down this lane a bit more. Mm. In terms of the New York City club scene, that was a, a much more specialized yeah. um, sound and market. Yeah. And a lot of the guys that were playing that what was really big in the club scene was like Latin, hip hop, freestyle, um, early hip hop. We're kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that gay, that gay music that is being. I'm like, trust me, <laughs> it works. And I just kind of picked that lane, yeah. And it it connected with me, and from there, here we are today. What was it about the differences in energy from hip hop house at that time that like really caught your attention? And do you remember? Do you remember specifically sort of like the first house record you heard and just being like? What the hell is going on here? Well, the energetically, I think hip hop um, was much more, had started to become more, a, a little bit more aggressive, mm -hmm. um, a bit more about your crews. In the beginning, you know, when I was when I was first in the early scenes, it, it was still about crews, but it was more about battling each other and dancing and so on and so forth. It started to become a bit darker for me, and there was definitely a different kind of street energy that was going into it. It started changing. With house music, there was still this kind of communal feeling of love, and it was connecting back to the disco era. Mm. So there was that fun and really focusing on the dancing aspect of it. Yeah. And to me, house music pulled me back into the soul of disco. Right. And that's what, even though it was stripped back, that's what I really connected with. And I mean, um, I'm back um, I'm back again from Jesse Saunders was one of the ones where I went like, whoa, that's amazing. Like, what is that track? Um, I remember listening to um, Nitro Deluxe, Let's Get Brutal at the Paradise Garage, which blew me away. Um, so many tracks. And then hearing um, Marshall Jefferson, the house music anthem, mm. kind of really kind of broke it open. And then, and then it started really becoming a lot more uh, popular or more people started connecting with the overall vibe of house music. It was a little bit different in Chicago than in New York. In New York, it was really underground, mm. really, really underground, and was more about that late night, after hours vibe. Mm -hmm. um, that's what started connecting in New York, and I think in, in Chicago, it was pretty much that way as well, but it seemed like it was, it felt like it was much more prevalent, mm -hmm. and then it just kind of started growing in New York. Then you had guys like Todd Terry, um, which really kind of added the hip hop element early on. And that changed house to me mm. in terms of, okay, now New York has got some flavor in it. Yeah. It yeah. started adding some local flavor to house. Let's talk about your relationship with Todd. Two guys who've been around a long time, yeah. <laughs> successfully, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and seen similar things. Um, what's it like being able to move through this music world with somebody and other peers as well for such a long time and, and see both winning basically. Todd is interesting because my very first tour to the UK mm. that I had ever done and I had released records on labels like Strictly Rhythm. Um, so my very first Strictly Rhythm tour, Todd was who, was who I was touring with. So, and at that point in time, Todd was already very well known. He had some 
really big club hits. Um, and I was just this fresh kid out of Queens who had a record called Love Dancing, which I just connected. And Todd kind of took me under his wing on that tour. He kind of sat me down. And he goes, look, I like you. You know, <laughs> you, you. And a lot of people were scared of Todd because he was like really moody and really like, you better have my money. Um, <laughs> but to me, he was just like, we got on great. And he's like, look, I'm going to tell you a few things that, you know, he was really business minded from the very, very beginning. So he kind of sat me down and was like, here's some things you should be doing to kind of get your business and get your money up mm -hmm. and get yourself situated. Do this, get these, you know, get these amount of tracks, go into the studio, connect with this guy, connect with that guy. Um, and just kind of seeing him operate in that first, very, very first tour, um, really kind of taught me a lot and he and i really bonded from that point on we've been boys ever since mm -hmm. um and just kind of my my i was in awe of his production technique and just kind of his mentality of not really caring what people thought he's just like i'm going grit i want dirt i'm gonna throw you know roger take dirt and throw it on on the on, <laughs> on the sb 1200 and you know so that kind of mentality also connected with me and yeah. really informed some of my musical decisions just because we it's like me todd masters at work there was quite a few people that were in that kind of come up scene from the new york city house era and hip-hop definitely influenced a lot of the kind of foundational beat production that we did especially like with kenny and todd and me um but but kind of connecting with these guys, we kind of had this um, synergy going mm. on with what we were doing. So it's been really cool to see the evolution and kind of things coming full circle in a lot of ways. Yeah, I love watching you guys play every year in Croatia, all of you. It's fun. Yeah, it's so fun. And you guys still are having fun. And you guys still look like you're having fun. And yeah, to your point around Todd, I always feel like when I'm, watching one of his sets or on the dance floor on one of his sets there's there is dirt in it you're oh, always just grime. like total grime <laughs> yeah. that's been Todd's he's like that's my secret sauce yeah, dirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like dirt. this is my secret sauce dirt <laughs> we all need a bit of dirt sometimes absolutely um, let's talk about something that actually has a, a pretty good bass line yeah running away an anthem Roy Ayers one of my all time favorite I can't even kind of quantify him in one place. He's a jazz musician that's a disco, funk, and soul musician as well. And what's interesting is he was actually a xylophonist. <laughs> that's him playing xylophone. That's like his main instrument. Yeah. Um, but has an incredibly soulful vocal mm. that he would put on all of his tracks and he had this incredible production technique running away specifically was one of those tracks that i had heard at the paradise garage mm. and also at the loft that once that that snare roll that that bass line so so funky mm. um that became one of my staple tracks to play in my sets so there were a few kind of disco tracks that were always in my sets, even in the house sets, especially in New York, because we would mix a lot of disco classics into our house music sets. Uh, that one was a New York favorite. And 
it was interesting because when you go back into the Roy Ayers catalog, mm. there are really kind of groundbreaking tracks like Everybody Loves the Sunshine, um, Sweet Tears, and some really early jazz tracks that you could track the, the kind of growth and the transition and the movement of time mm. that this particular artist has done. So that also kind of informed me in understanding on how to stick true to your core and your roots, but move through time and, and let it inform you. Mm. It affects you, but it also can inform your musical and creative decisions. So that's one thing that Running Away taught me, especially kind of looking through the discography and going, oh, okay, it's okay to move and it's okay to shift and it's okay to change. Mm. And just as a foundational club record for me, it's all about the baseline and the groove on that track. Yeah. That is just one of those basslines. You you is like you have no choice but to dance <laughs> when you hear that. I know that um, talking about the groove and the funk of these kind of tunes and where you've come from musically, where you where you've grown up and the DJs that you've grown up with, your peers. Sometimes I find like. I listen to the records that you make or you've made and I listen to things of similar genre who are made maybe by producers who like, I don't know, grew up in London or Europe yeah. or something. And there is something that we are enabled to capture that you guys capture. And I think it is just because, like you said, it's in your blood. It, it's not just in our blood. And I will, every creation is a result of decisions, mm. which is interesting. What informs your decision is a, is impacted by your environment to a major degree. That includes the culture you grow up in, mm -hmm. the cities or the you know the the countryside or whatever you grow up in. All of these kind of different elements that are kind of hard and ephemeral to kind of really pin down, mm -hmm. but they all go into the sauce of the perspective. So me making music is through the lens of the different eras and the different um, cultural kind of beds that I've grown up in. So because I'm a fan of hip hop and because I'm a fan of disco and soul, there's always that element that creeps into my stuff. Even when I try to like, I've been coming to the to the UK since 1990 mm -hmm. um, to kind of give myself a date stamp, um, <laughs> and I feel very connected to London. I've heard your Cockney accent, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I've been here quite some time now, <laughs> so I feel real connected to streets here in London. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I've. I've spent a lot of time here, so I've, it, it reminds me of New York in a lot of the con social conditions mm -hmm. and a lot of the energy. Mm -hmm. um, but there is definitely identifiable differences. And I, because I come here so much and because it feels like a second home and I spend so much time here, there are elements of that that I pull into my music and that I try to, funny enough, emulate as well. Mm -hmm. So it's... We're constantly inspiring and emulating each other. But even with that, I can't quite capture the British 
fully the the British kind of tone in certain things. And there's some producers that I'm, I love what they do. I can't do it like that because my brain isn't wired that way. Mm-hmm. But I'll take an influence from that and reinterpret it in my way. And this is probably the same thing you're running up and into yeah. against where it's like, I really kind of want to make a track that's like this. I've used the same damn drum sound. And the <laughs> bass like just doesn't come out the same way. And it's because your lens is really formed by your environment. Yeah. So as having that UK environment is going to always shape it. And I just learned to accept it and kind of appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that is everyone's secret source, isn't it? Is their environment, yeah. their music. Yeah. Their perspective. Yeah. Um, we cannot talk about moments in music without mentioning another chance, nah. of course. Um for me personally, this record, I this ca- I was ten when this record came out, two thousand one. Wow, now I'm feeling was real. It? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I remember actually the first time I heard the record was when I watched the video at the same time. Yeah. On TV, I can't remember what it was, MTV or something. Probably MTV. Yeah, probably MTV. And it God, I was remember that press run. <laughs> it was the first uh, music video that I that. It was really like emotive for me yeah. as a even even as a ten year old, and I remember ke- connecting with it visually, but also you know the feel of the it. feel of it yeah. as well. And I remember you know the heart getting smaller and getting bigger, yeah, yeah. and and that video is just burnt into my memory so fondly. Um, and obviously that track, you know, went number one here and all over the world. You know, the interesting thing about that was that was the last track quite literally the last track I had done for the album. Um, When I first started working on the album, I had been signed to Sony. Mm. They had a dance department. Um, And it was one of those ones where I had no demos. They were like, hey, we want to sign you and do an album. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, Sometime between starting the album and finishing the album, the Sony dance department collapsed, which is when Simon Dunmore, who was a really good friend of mine who I'd I'd befriended over the years, he had started defected at that point in time. And he's like, you know what? I'll be happy to take over the project. And I'm like, great, at least I trust you. I know mm-hmm. I know who you, I know who you are and I know what your motives are. So I feel like there is actually much more connection here. So it was important. That's a very important kind of pivotal moment in making this get into another chance. Mm-hmm. So as I'm doing the, the project, the last track that I'm working on the album, I'm like, you know what? This album, I feel like it needs. I feel like it needs an underground track. Um, <laughs> totally, you know, another example of how I've learned to kind of let go. That was one of my first indications. Like, whatever you think it's gonna be, it's gonna do its own thing. Mm. Um, so I literally was. I had gone to Montreal record shopping. Everywhere I'd go, I'd try to take my time when I was in Japan or whatever, go to vinyl shops, buy vinyl. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, it was all vinyl. And I remember buying all these old tracks and all these old records and kind of really going beat diving. That was like one of my things. And Kenny Dope and I used to do that a lot. I was in Montreal and I picked up the Toto album. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the uh, um, the the song um, Africa, which was one of my favorite tracks from Toto. And so as I'm working on my album and I'm, I, I'm skipping through kind of samples to snack, I find the, the intro of a ballad they did called Never Let You Down um, or Never Let You Down Again. Um, and I just, that line, if I had another chance tonight, um, 
I try to tell you that the things we had were right just felt really melancholy and bittersweet. Um, and then I just said, okay, cool. And I started producing the track around it. And what I managed accidentally to get was this euphoric aspect with the bass line and this kind of real small production details, but still keep that really emotional, melancholy lyric that I kind of built the track around. Um, and that became another chance. Gave it to Simon, handed it in, album's all wrapped up, drops the album. We had, there were two singles that had dropped before then. Um, one was um, I Never Knew, though I was still on Sony. And then when Simon took over, the first one he released was Another Chance. We got together with this film, with this uh, video director mm -hmm. called Philippe, uh, and he had a concept which immediately connected to me. He's like, this is what the track makes me feel like. It's like your, your heart's getting bigger and smaller. So I was like, this is wonderful, great concept, whatever. Had no idea what it was going to do, except when I played it at one of my sets, at that point in time, was Pacha in Piccadilly, mm -hmm. when they had it, Piccadilly. And I remember playing it, and it was a test pressing of that song. Four girls came up to me through the course after I played the track. What is that song? And I'm like, oh, hmm, interesting. Makes the girls come up and talk to me. <laughs> uh, and that's when I had an inkling of it could be something. Hmm. When it was released and it went number one, we were floored. And I was like, wow. I had no idea. But the video really connected with the emotion of that track. So for me, the most important thing about making that track was that emotional content and those chords and just lyrically what it sent. Now, at the time that record came out, I, one of my best friends who was also my manager unfortunately passed away. Mm -hmm. And that kind of tied that moment in for me because then the lyrics, if I had another chance tonight, I'd try to tell you what the things we had to write, really connected with me mm. in a much more profound way. And I think that energy has kind of suffused what happened with that track. Mm. And I think that's the reason why people really connect with it on an emotional level. Yeah, it's, um, it's a moment that people try and formulate and replicate and you just can't. It's accidental. Yeah. The best moments that I've ever had in terms of creating something are accidental. I, 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 one of the people who I really truly admire um, as a producer, Rick Rubin, mm -hmm. um, his thought on where creativity comes from, it's kind of like you put an antenna up mm. and the universe gives you these creations and how much you have your antenna up and your openness to it allows you to conduct that track. So yeah. for me, that's really what I feel like I do. I feel like I've been kind of given this blessing as long as I keep putting my antenna up, going to the studio, even when I don't feel like it and, or being on my laptop or whatever it is and just create. You know, it's like going to a well. Sometimes you're sitting there and you're you're pumping 
water and there's nothing coming up until it catches and all of a sudden all the water flows. That's what I equate. When I take a break from producing music, getting back into it and getting, I don't know if you've experienced this, if you take a break from from production, getting back into it is really hard. It's like quitting the gym for a little while and then going back. <laughs> Sucks the first month. Yeah, yeah. But at some point in time, after forcing myself, and literally I'll be there for days, I got a kick, a clap, and a hi-hat. That's about as far, that's all I got. I'm like, I suck. This, I don't know why, why do they pay me to do this? I don't know why. Junior Sanchez and I always have this conversation. Something happens from just forcing myself to do it where it then starts to happen on its own. Mm. And then you just kind of, if you just open yourself up, it comes through you. That's what happens to me anyway. So that's kind of why songs like Another Chance, Lost, things like this come. And I'm fortunate that they pick me. When you're talking about going into the studio and it being really difficult for the first couple of days, I feel you on that one. And I feel it's like what you were talking about earlier when you just decide to let go yeah. and and let things come to you rather than you trying to get to it, whatever that yeah. it is, uh, and you reach more of like a flow state. It's kind of like me asking myself, why so serious? <laughs> uh, inevitably, I try to push myself yeah. into someplace different and unknown. I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I strive to try to do that so that I don't get stagnant and I don't just repeat myself all the time um and learning to let go sometimes and i'm highly critical of the things that i do while i'm doing them but there comes a point where i've become better at letting go now than i used to be mm. and also ignoring criticism because what happens is um if you allow criticism to dictate your choices and your decision, um, you sometimes lose the ability to express authentically what you're trying to say or emote when you're creating music. At least that's what happens to me. So there's a certain amount of understanding that I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna try something, I'm gonna try to break patterns just because I find it interesting. Mm -hmm. And the more fun I have with that, whether it, whether I end up with something that I then decide to complete and release or not, I've allowed myself the freedom to try something. Um, fully understanding that I'll probably fail. Yeah. Uh, and being okay with that because in, in the act of creation, there really is no failure as long as you're doing something. If it's not where you want to go, that's okay too. Sometimes that path will lead you to some place that you know might spark a different direction, or it just might be okay. Well, I tried that; mm. that didn't work. Let me let me reroute and try something else. And I think I've become better at doing that over time, just because I've learned to care less what people think, yeah. honestly. And it's not a conceit; it's more like starting to. It's, it's funny, the longer you do this, um, if you truly want to express, the more you learn to trust yourself. Yeah. And I think that's taken me personally quite a long time to trust that what I'm doing doesn't 
totally suck. Because <laughs> suck a bit sometimes, but it doesn't totally suck. Yeah. And it, it's about um, choosing whose opinion you decide to take on board, right? But see, and this is the thing. I take, I lit, so to kind of address what I said before, I ignore the opinions at the same time I pay attention to them. Yeah. So what I pay attention to are things that I could learn from and go, okay, you have a good point. That's an interesting perspective. What I ignore are things that are trying to be comparative to something else in the market yeah. or a particular direction that I should be doing. And I think that understanding which ones to choose and not just who to listen to, what to listen to mm. is something that you 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 develop over time. You know, some people that have given me some of the best advice have put a lot of crap in along with it. I've just taken me a while to not go, okay, everything you say is right, yeah. and everything I think is wrong, <laughs> or not, or like you're full of crap. I don't want to talk to you. It's 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 got to be. You got to trust yourself to discern a bit more yeah. over time to balance it out. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to grasp, and I think in a way it's kind of only something that you grasp the longer you're in it and the more you understand yourself yeah 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 this yeah. is really where a lot of people i find struggle where they're in wanting to and appreciating other artists or other individuals they want to emulate certain things but haven't figured out how to filter the influences into their own language and they don't know how to be themselves because the goal isn't creation. The goal is result mm -hmm. of whether it's fame, money, visibility, whatever it is. If that's the goal, it becomes a lot harder to kind of figure yourself out. Mm. And it's not something that happens quickly. So people that want to, some people are blessed. They know who they are from the very beginning and yeah. they just have this attitude. This is what I'm doing. I don't care what anybody thinks. Fearless, love it. Takes a while. Yeah, really it's, a, it's a continuous process as well. Right? Constantly. Yeah, it's constant. If, um, not just evolution, but kind of like giving yourself vibe checks every so often. <laughs> just kind of really going, okay, what's my vibe right now? Where, where, where's my head at? What am I thinking? Okay, what do I want to say? Mm. Sometimes I struggle with that. Yeah, I don't have anything to say to it. I don't know if you've um, you see you've heard the new project. Um, that Andre 3000 just dropped. The, the flute, flute thing. jazz album. Listening to it the other day. Have you listened to the interview that they did on Spotify with him? I think there was a clip where he was talking about, if it's the one they're referring to, the guy was like, why well, wasn't it a rap album? And he was just like, I don't have anything to say. So what I found interesting, because I listened to that whole interview, because mm. even before I listened to the, I started listening to the album and then I actually wanted to hear his perspective. Uh, and I found that very interesting because within that saying, I don't have anything, like, what am I going to rap about? I'm 48 years old. Am I about getting a colonoscopy? Yeah. He was being funny. Yeah. He was actually being facetious. But within that, the, the truth is, I don't feel like I have anything to say in that medium yes. right now. Yeah. I feel like I got something to say here. Yeah. So I think... That's another great indication of an artist who has just kind of surrendered mm. to saying, you know what, 
I, I used to know what I was doing in there because that was who I was at that point in time. I'm no longer that person. My experiences have changed me. Yeah. I'm kind of here now. You can either fight that or you can then embrace it and go, okay, so now what do I do while I'm here? Yeah. And rather than worrying about what other people and previous fans, and it's brave to do that, but at the same time, it's also very cathartic to say, this is who I am right now. Mm. And I embrace that. And this is what I'm going to do because this is who I am right now. And I think that's been very interesting for me to hear that because I've gotten to that place quite some time ago. And it's interesting because it's cycled back into me kind of going back into some of my root stuff in terms of a producer mm. and as a DJ and just learning to trust myself more. Yeah. And I think that is really important for people, artists especially, to learn to trust their own process yeah that's a great reference because we all love andre 3000 yeah, and what he did amazing and would we have loved to hear, hear a rap album of course we would have but and, you at, may, and you may still hear one we may still hear one but yeah. at the same time i love the fact that he made a flute album <laughs> like it's the most middle finger up to everybody yeah, i love it well what it does is it shows you that when you are able to let go of the fear mm. of someone, of not just ridicule, but of other people's opinion and it being negative, you can then give yourself permission to create. I find that to be something that I've really gotten to grips with is giving myself permission to have fun, mm. to enjoy and to love what I love. Mm. And that's something that, you know, in in the industry that we're in, specifically house music, club music, underground, whatever, this whole, oh, you're not underground, you're crossover, or you're not connecting, this and that, you're not relevant, whatever, have all of those things were things that I dealt with and struggled with for years. I don't talk to anybody about them. It's just stuff that I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. I had certain people, I've had to change teams. I've had people saying, you should go in this direction because this is what's popping. What you're doing wasn't, is it happening right now? And in changing the people around me, I've allowed myself to kind of shut out the noise and return to kind of a place where like, ah, I remember who I am. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I find um, really important. If you've got a lot of people around you that are trying to push you in a direction that doesn't feel right, you just need to cut the noise out. Yeah, I had to do that in order to kind of get to a place where I could trust myself again. Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult step to take as well. 100%. Um, because I can definitely relate to that. I've gone uh, sort of down a path that isn't traditional, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like I decided not to tour as much. I have another business. I'm not doing this 24 mm seven, -hmm. seven days a week. And I think when you now have- Now you're parting. It's different. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, I know. And and when you, when you have a team around you and that's their bag, mm -hmm. it's difficult to sell that to them. But again, I think people have to remember that these people work for you, essentially. Yep. Um, but at the same time, I can imagine and I understand why it's hard for them to buy into. But it it sort of trusting myself and going down a path that isn't traditional has been one of the probably one of the most like eye opening processes and also like a relief. Here's the interesting part. Um, it comes down to because when you have teams of wonderful when yeah. they help you um, achieve what you want to achieve. The the downside of a team is there are people that eat from you. Mm. So I have a phrase called burning the forest down. 
<laughs> and that phrase is something that's something that I've done several times in my life. And what that means is I've got to get rid of managers, agents, ex-girlfriends, ex-wife, wife, um, <laughs> people that were in my ecosystem who wound up being counterproductive to my mental health mm. because they were concerned more about their ability to extract value for themselves within what I was doing and not really resonating with what where I was going. Mm. And so I've burnt the forest down to the ground and then use the ashes to reseed and regrow my forest several times in my life. Mm. But what I've found is I've gotten to a place where now I can recognize if things are starting to shift in a way that doesn't serve me. Mm -hmm. And I have to be 100% honest with myself at every turn. And that's helped me build a team now that I'm very, very involved. The other mm. part of it was there was a point in time where I kind of handed the business and the decisions over to management and the team. And that was a bit irresponsible of me. Mm. I'm very involved in all the decisions. I make the ultimate decisions on everything, but more importantly, I'm involved in all the process. I let them do what they, what they have to do, but I have to take responsibility for the direction of my career mm -hmm. and communicate that to my team at all times. It's accountability is something that has really become far more important for me. That informs every decision, including what I make, what I play, how often I'll tour, how often I won't tour, how much money is I'm gonna budget my life to, depending on what's coming in, because I need more time to live. And I've been a machine on the road for years, mm. and I've really learned, as, as busy as I am, I take breaks. I didn't used to take breaks. Yeah. It's very, very imperative to do that. Yeah. And it, it goes back to making choices for yourself. Never forget, you are the creative. And if you don't feed that and if you don't make the decisions that sit well with your spirit, ultimately you'll crash. Yeah. Because you can only fight yourself for so long before you lose momentum and start crashing. You, you start being, there was a point where I was confused. I didn't even know what, what music to produce, what to play. Yeah. It's the worst thing looking at your records that you used to feel like that's my best friend or looking at your, your playlist, you're creating... That's my best friend. I know what I'm doing. And then looking at it like it's an alien. Like that happened to me where I was looking at my music going, I don't know what to play. Mm. I, I don't know what to say. I have nothing to say. Yeah. That's a scary place to be. Go make a flute album. <laughs> it, it, and literally, it's, it's what kind of the noise that was around me was creating that confusion. So you got to block the noise out. Yeah. That's, um, that's really insightful and really interesting. And we're going to end on a... A curveball. Yes. You've chosen The Clash. Yes. Talk us through this record. British <laughs> music. Here's an interesting thing. Back in the kind of breakdancing days, as I like to call them, because my music was so eclectic, I don't think the Brits understand their influence in American music mm. really at the heart of where we're at. Because I know Americans get looked at as a lot of the influence, especially when it comes to the you know the hip hop, mm -hmm. you know disco, so on and so forth. But bands like The Clash 
were massive in terms of some of their tracks at the Paradise Garage, the Loft. I, I really referenced those two songs, those two clubs, because those are very seminal for me in terms of informing a lot of my musical decisions. And for so many people too. And for so many yeah. people. But in addition to that, the actual scene, like I used to play um, Magnificent Dance, but the one that was a big break dance one for me was This Is Radio Clash, which I later kind of jacked that bass line for a track that I did um, called uh, Who uh, Got Funk. Yeah. That don't, don't, don't. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. That was a track I used to drop, and that was like a big break dance track for me, um, kind of in those pre-house days. And I used to just cut up that that baseline back and forth mm -hmm. the clash to me was one of those bands that was it was weird because they were a punk band yeah and i really in the 80s the big record that they had was rock the casbah that was like their big crossover hit in america but what i was playing even before they had rock the casbah as a hit in america was this is radio clash and and then uh, after that, you had Magnificent Dance. All these, all these were actually Magnificent Dance was before that. But in terms of kind of like what informed the dance floor, they were kind of like a curveball mm. for the dance floor because then it was like punk stuff that had nothing to do with what was going on with the club scene. Yeah. But it just showed that there's a really... Um, dance floor driven sensibility in British music across the board that really connected for me personally, especially within that New York scene. And that to me just kind of reminds me of being in the village and in, in Broadway in New York city and kind of these kids break dancing and me kind of cutting up that track. It's, and it's all about that baseline. Sick. I would never have you expected you to <laughs> chose that track. And I wouldn't have expected you to say I used to cut it up and play it to break dances. So that's an amazing story to hear. Um, thank you so much for coming for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We have uh, one thing that we like to do before guests leave. Um, I would like you to choose a record and we're going to gift that to the next guest. Mm. Um, you don't know who the guest is. We leave it as a bit of a secret. Got if it. you could give one record to somebody... What would it be? Ooh. Just any record. Any record you like. Um, here's another curveball. Okay. I was a big New Wave fan. Yeah. Um, so I would pick Alphaville Forever Young. Wicked. Wasn't expecting that one either. <laughs> I got a few curveballs. Yeah, in definitely. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I've have found this. Obviously, we've played on the same lineups a fair few many times. You kick it. You kill it. But just like as we were going through the conversation, I found this conversation to be one really interesting, really insightful, and two really strange to think that I was watching your video when I was ten years old, and now <laughs> here we are having this chat. So it's been lovely. Thank you so much. It just shows you that. Music connects across time. Yeah. And the fact that we're having this conversation right now, for me, just makes me feel that this is kind of part of my mission. And I'm very just blessed and happy to be here and, and happy to share this time with you. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Moments in Music.